Hello and welcome again to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. There have been a few high-profile poltergeist cases over the years, and they're always interesting because they involve a lot of intersection between the paranormal investigation approach and the use of folklore and psychology when trying to untangle what's happened. We've covered a very early one from the 1930s on the podcast before, in the shape of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. One of the most well-known British examples is the case of the Enfield poltergeist from the 1970s. And we've not covered that one, and possibly we won't. It's been looked at many times before, and there's probably little new to discover at the moment. But 20 years before that case, there was another British example which lasted for an incredible 12 years, from 1956 onwards. And yet, outside of a book co-authored by James Clark and the girl at the centre of the disturbance, Shirley Hitchens, it's remained relatively obscure until now. Because this year has seen a brilliant docudrama look at the case on the BBC, starring Daphne Keane and Toby Jones, and written and presented by my guest on the Folklore Podcast today, broadcaster Danny Robbins. If you've not heard the series, you should definitely seek it out. I spoke to Danny recently about the case and his work with the original documents from the archive, but first, to get you in the mood, here is a trailer for the series. A new podcast series from BBC Radio 4. In the first stage of a poltergeist haunting, the entity will confine itself to making noise, as if it's testing its victims. The Battersea Poltergeist. My name's Shirley Hitchens. I'm 15 years old. I live with my mum, dad, brother, gran and Donald. Subscribe to The Battersea Poltergeist on BBC Sounds. The writer of The Battersea Poltergeist, Danny Robbins, joined me from his shed, the current hub of his broadcasting operations, to tell me more. So, Danny, thanks for taking some time out of your busy evening. I know you're preparing for the live tweeting of episode seven of The Battersea Poltergeist as we record this, but uh, it's, it's great to have a chance to chat to you about the whole thing. So welcome. Thank you, Mark. Before we start, we heard a little extract at, at the top of this episode from uh, from an earlier part of the Battersea Poltergeist um, broadcast. But for those that have not been listening along so far, and uh, who I hope will after they've listened to this interview, if nothing else, can you just explain a little bit about the, the details of the Battersea Poltergeist case and, and what actually happened? Yeah, sure. So this is 1956, and um, it's that time of the Suez Crisis War just about to kick off. Elvis has just released Heartbreak Hotel. Rock and roll is breaking. It's a Britain still recovering from the war, and and you know you still see bombed out ruins of houses in some of the streets. Kids playing in the ruins. So it's it's a very different time to us. But um, it's a street called Wycliffe Road and this particular house, number 63 Wycliffe Road, starts to experience these very strange goings on. There are these noises that resonate around the whole street, waking the neighbours, that people say it's like the Blitz all over again. Uh, And then from there, things really grow and and objects seem to start to move in the house and then there are strange fires and, uh, you know, it, it progresses to all sorts of phenomena like, you know, discarnate voices and, uh, you know, seemingly written communications even. So a huge amount of interesting phenomena that kind of conforms to the kind of classic poltergeist mould. And it all seems to revolve around this girl, Shirley, Shirley Hitchings, who is 15 years old. And her and her family essentially kind of go through this incredible ordeal of, of sleepless nights and, and, and terror and and also then... That's going on inside the house, but outside the house, you have this huge press presence. You have the nation's media descending on this house. And, you know, we're kind of used now to um, to ordinary people becoming famous through reality TV and X Factor and all those things. But at this point, that just isn't happening. And the fact that this ordinary teenage girl suddenly becomes the, you know, the front page of all these newspapers and, and she's on television at seven o'clock at night on the BBC, you know, somebody trying to contact her poltergeist live on television. So she becomes really famous. And it's, it's, 
a deeply disturbing and disorienting experience for her. And so our podcast tells the story of this, and, and it's the story of a poltergeist case that eventually goes on for 12 years. It lasts until 1968. And, oh, I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> Just I, I talked about poltergeists. There are strange noises like fireworks going off. Wow, there we go. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> on cue. Um, but um, the, the family label this poltergeist Donald. He gets nicknamed Donald. And so, so he's the kind of um, sinister presence at the heart of our series, really. But we've been lucky enough to have Shirley still alive. She's 80 now, 65 years on. She tells us her, her story. So I think what's been amazing for me is that clearly people love a ghost story and people even more love a poltergeist story because it's got that tangibility of objects flying and seemingly the impossible impacting on our world. And then, you know, we, we know the famous poltergeist stories, you know, particularly Enfield has been kind of done to death now and, and, and certainly the subject of several movies. But um, to find a new poltergeist case that actually was huge at the time, it was a massive story. There were even questions in Parliament. The Home Secretary was talking about this in Parliament. But it's been forgotten and largely kind of consigned to, you know, I mean, to the, the back, the, the further reaches of the Internet. It's quite hard to find information on it. And what is out there is often wrong. But why um, is that? Why is that? Why is this case so obscure, considering the size and the breadth of it compared with Enfield and, and well, something like Borley Rectory, for that matter, which was a much shorter timescale? I, th Why? I think it's, there's, there's some tangible reasons. I mean, I think Borley was recorded by Harry Price, who became a legend in ghost hunting, and his book at the time was a huge bestseller. So that, that's kind of stood the test of time. I think the, the thing about our case is that it was 1956, and actually you sort of forget what that was like back then. And actually even holding, getting hold of a camera was not very easy. You certainly didn't have recording equipment. Video cameras just did not exist. You were not wandering around doing that. So... Enfield is much better documented. Enfield had television journalists on the scene pretty quickly, radio journalists there, and, and just so much more material recorded. And then that material worked its way onto YouTube. And I, I don't think Enfield was as big a part of our kind of, you know, our folklore and our, our kind of cultural consciousness before it got onto YouTube and it kind of leaked out and it became this kind of huge thing, the kind of the ghost case where you could see videos of what was going on. Um, Battersea just doesn't have that. There's no videos. There's no audio recording. It is the files of the investigator, Harold Chibbett, who was this kind of, you know, Harry Price-like in a way. He, he was a, a kind of, not a legend in his own lifetime, but he was kind of well-known. He was friends with Arthur Conan Doyle and Alistair Crowley, the black magician, and various influential people at the time. And he kept these painstaking files of the case. So we've got all his records that have survived, We've got all the newspaper cuttings and we've got the family's diaries. And then brilliantly, we have this extra layer of, of the memories of Shirley. You know, so I think that's what we're drawing on for our case. But I think, you know, it, it, it hasn't been out there because all that stuff doesn't exist on the Internet. It, it hasn't been put out there. And it also gets conflated with a 1920s case that Harry Price investigated on Ellen Road, which also gets called the Battersea Poltergeist sometimes. And a lot of the accounts you read get very confused. They start talking about R. Shirley and, and falling in love with the ghost and then, you know, saying that it was in the 1920s. And, and you can see that, you know, it, it's research that's kind of been compiled together from various erroneous sources. So, yeah, so there isn't a lot out there, essentially. And, and, and hearing our, our series, you're certainly discovering stuff that you just cannot find on the Internet. So how did you come about? getting involved with this case how did you learn about it in the first place well, this is the thing i mean i i have found that actually I, so i made a series called haunted a few years ago which which told real life ghost stories one per episode and i found that in making that i, I mean i drew those stories from social media but in making that a lot more stories came to me because people heard it and sort of felt you know this is a safe space to tell your story this is i mean it was a show that was enjoyed equally by believers and skeptics. And it set out to offer explanations for the things that happened to people, but it did not debunk it. It wasn't in the business of kind of pouring cold water on things. It, it allowed a degree of ambiguity. And, and, and so people who'd had these experiences felt they could come to me and they could talk about it. And this is people who 
had been nervous talking about what happened to them because they felt they'd be judged as mad, you know, and, and actually all laughed at. So I started to get a lot more stories coming in. And one of the stories that came to me came via Alan Murdy, who some of your listeners might know, who's a real kind of behemoth of the ghost hunting scene. He was chairman of the Ghost Club and a big influential member of the SPR. And he, he'd done an interview with me for it as an expert. And um, he said, I've got this case I've been looking into. There's this huge box of files. There's loads of letters seemingly from a ghost. And the woman it happened to is still alive. And as soon as I heard all this, I was like, this sounds interesting. So I then talked to Shirley. And as soon as I heard her tell a story, I was like, this is not a single episode. This is something bigger. And, you know, and then basically that was about two years ago. And then over the next two years, I researched it. I kind of spoke to people, you know, the BBC got interested and it kind of grew from there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it just, it's one of those amazing stories that really, you know, perhaps only comes along once in a lifetime. It plays out like the plot of a film and yet it is real life. And, you know, we've told this story for a mixture of drama and documentary. We have actors bringing the original haunting to life. And then you also hear my present day investigation. But within that drama, I've not had to invent things. I'm not, I'm not, you know, changing the course of it. I'm literally telling what happened. And, and yeah, we don't have transcripts of every single thing that was said. So I've used dramatic license to kind of, you know, bring those characters to life. But I'm not creating any events. You know, the events you hear seemed to actually happen you know the family believed that happened there were many many witnesses to back it up chib was there recording it harold chibbett was there recording it as the investigator so yeah you know it, it, it's it's uh, for me as a storyteller it's a treat i i've seen some of the contents of that archive so some of the um photos that were taken of the people involved at the time, um, some scans of, of some of the letters and things like that. And there's there's some great stuff in there, but I'm fairly certain that I've only seen um, a few of those documents. So what, what comprises this archive that's been useful to you in your research? Well, so I guess with any ghost story, you want to take different perspectives on it. And, and if we just set out and literally just had Shirley tell her story, I think, you know, it'd be fair to say there were a lot of accusations of just, but you're just, you know, willfully believing someone. How do we know it's true? So, I mean, I think the great thing is we've got different viewpoints here, different corroborating things. We've got Chibbert, who, you know, he's definitely a, a ghost hunter who wants to believe. He comes from that starting point. He was in the First World War which, you know, had a profound impact on that generation. You know, it, it led to a kind of huge interest in life after death and wanting to contact the dead. So he's definitely got that. He's bringing that to the table. But he's still objective. And there's plenty of moments where he's quite rigorously checking if things have been faked and sometimes deciding that certain things, you know, did not feel genuine. So he's, he's objective in that sense. So we have that. We have Shirley's father's diaries, which is a kind of very powerful first-hand account. Um, you know, he's he's... You know, I mean, he's someone who's certainly not a natural writer. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of, you know, not the most flowing of writing, but it's incredibly raw and incredibly powerful reading that. We've got the newspaper accounts and we've got, you know, journalists who were there present at moments where this spirit seemed to be contacted. And we had a journalist who stayed the night in the house and wrote about her experiences and what, what she felt was kind of truly terrifying. Um so we've got all of that and we've got, uh, you know, there are reports from the police, there are, you know, fire brigade and, um, you know, all, all sorts of things. And then obviously this amazing record of Shirley. And now coming out of the woodwork, we have people contacting us. You know, we have somebody who lived in the house next door, you know, another elderly person who who lived in the house next door as a kid and um, and somebody who'd worked with Harold Chibbert and who, you know, looked at case notes and spoken to Chip about the case. So all this stuff is coming to us. And that's really how we've been able to tell this story and how we kind of be able to build it and, and what we're using uh, to investigate it, really. But all of these things we're subjecting to kind of modern scrutiny. We've got modern experts. We've got psychologist Kieran O'Keefe, who will be familiar to some listeners for being on um, various TV shows and, and being kind of a, a, a skeptic voice. Um, we've got Evelyn Hollow, who's a really interesting kind of up and coming parapsychologist from Scotland and writer um and then you know during the course of the series I, I do speak to many different other people and, and you know and, and i'm sure before the series is out i'll have had many more skeptic voices and you know maybe speaking to like a, a sort of psychotherapist and you know I, I think 
for me, it's really interesting bringing in these different perspectives and being quite rigorously analytical with the case. But still, at heart, you know, it is a great ghost story. And the, the best ghost stories survive because there is enough mystery at the heart of them that they are fairly sceptic proof. <laughs> you know, you know well, yeah, uh, if it was easily debunked, we wouldn't still be talking about it after 65 years. No, we really wouldn't. It is an absolutely compelling case. Uh, and, I, and I was going to ask you um, why you chose this particular case, but I don't think that's actually necessary because I think it's fairly obvious from just the the amount of unused research until now and the, the amount that's involved with this case um which you're now essentially adding to this archive with your investigations too that it's absolutely clear as to why this is a good case to look into now as far as your dramatizations go um you've got uh daphne Keane playing um shirley um, and Daphne's a fantastic actress, um, and, and obviously since his Dark Materials has, has become incredibly popular. Did she have the chance to chat to Shirley? What does she make of the whole case, for example? No, Daphne never talked to Shirley. Um, I, I don't know if we should have or not, but I mean, we were recording in this kind of weird COVID situation. We had that kind of brief moment in the summer where suddenly society opened up a bit more and we, we could actually record together even though together in that case was quite weird that every actor was in a separate booth in the studio so we weren't literally in the same room and Daphne was in Madrid she lives in Madrid you know she's half Spanish and um so she was recording down the line from that and you know incredibly the technology is such now that it sounds like we're all in the same room together but um so no she didn't talk to Shirley um and you know we told her obviously lots of stuff about Shirley I mean, eerily, Daphne looks quite a lot like teenage Shirley, and we hadn't she really, really realised that. Yes. Yeah, we, had, we hadn't clocked that until she actually turned up on the day. But, um, uh, you know, and, and now you see photographs of her and you actually do go, yeah, my God, they really look similar. Um, but Shirley, the, the actual real-life Shirley, is thrilled and, and really loves uh, hearing her family and Chib brought back to life and, and really feels, I think, that the actors do kind of get it pretty close and do sound like the, the real people. Is she is she feeling a little bit happier about the whole thing now? Because I mean, this was a very traumatic time for her between the ages of fifteen and twenty seven. By the time this finished, I mean, she says, doesn't she? She essentially lost the majority of her childhood to this case. You know, she was, for want of a better term, kidnapped by the press at one point to be able to uh, try and get stories prized out of her from reporters. It must have been a horrendous experience. Has she found a bit of peace through this process with it? I, I think it's a mixture for Shirley. And I think, you know, you can hear when you hear her speaking, you can hear tangibly the, the fear that she felt at the time. And she describes that very powerfully. But, you know, I mean, clearly there was also an excitement to it as well. I think, you know, the, 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 there was this incredible drama and suddenly finding yourself at the middle of a press storm is both disorientating and sometimes horrible. And you hear, like you say, in the series, some really horrible experiences that she has at the hands of the press. But clearly there is excitement as well. You know, there, there was this kind of thing of, wow, I, I am like a celebrity, you know. And I think it's it's weirdly cyclical. Shirley's having that same thing again now that, you know, she's been on ITVs this morning. Like yesterday she was on breakfast television in Australia talking about the show. You know, the, the kind of, the show has had an amazing reach and spread around the world. And Shirley is having this second brush of fame, aged 80. And I think because she is now removed from being, in the heart of that fear and sleeplessness and you know the sort of trauma of what's happened i think she is able to enjoy it a bit more and to kind of you know see this as being therapeutic in a way and, and telling her story now and you know there are the cynics out there i see occasionally cynics on twitter saying oh i bet she's making a lot of money out of this and you know this is all the reason and you know she wrote a book about it like um about seven years ago with a writer called james clark which is a really interesting read if anybody wants to delve into the case more. But, you know, she, she's made maybe a few hundred pounds out of that at most, you know. I mean, that's not, you know, bringing in riches to her. And, you know, she the family never earned any money out of the newspaper articles back in the day. And, you know, Shirley's earning nothing out. You know, she doesn't earn out of, you know, being on this morning. It's, it's not making her a rich woman. So she's not doing this for some sort of celebrity or some sort of fame or riches, you know, she, she is finding telling the story therapeutic. And I think she's been very touched by the response to it. And, and it, it, it's been lovely for me as well to see how 
she is connected with the listeners and, and people do, you know, really, they feel for her and, you know, they're on her side, you know, and, and as the series draws to a conclusion, you know, there, there are moments where, you know, this case pulls you in different directions and there are moments where, you know, as Chib did, you question, you know, were all the phenomena genuine? Were there moments where members of the family were, you know, faking stuff? Just as with Enfield, there's always this debate about what is real and what is fake. And, you know, is there real paranormal phenomena and then moments where the kids were playing up to the cameras? And you will have those moments. But I think that throughout it all, I sort of challenge you to listen to this series and not feel that Shirley is telling the truth. I think I think there's a there's a lot to be said for the for the way that she speaks about the subject. You're right, and and she is very down to earth. And um, I think the the fact that she was extremely frightened more than anything else when it was actually taking place comes across in her witness testimony even now, sort of fifty or more years down the line. Now, there's been a lot of explanations offered during the course of your investigation for things some possibly uh more easy to believe than others certainly uh, my wife tracy and i will be tweeting later um <laughs> have been discussing this as if we've gone through um from the very first kind of hammer toe explanation for banging noises and you know, if you've got neighbours coming from down the street to complain about how loud the banging is, you've got to have a fairly serious case of hammer toe to be able to make that much noise. I think the destruction of your stereo probably is <laughs> testament to that. Um, what sort of explanations have been put forward that that, that are potentially viable and, and uh, at the other end of the spectrum completely off the wall? Well, I mean, I, I just love this. I, what, what's been brilliant for me is that the whole, I mean, I was going to say the whole nation, but I'm getting things from all around the world. But pe- people have turned into armchair sleuths. And so we've given out this email address, Battersea Poltergeist at bbc.co.uk at the end of every episode. And I'm just being deluged in things. And, and, and you know, a lot of it's questions, but a lot of it is theories, people saying, I've cracked the case for you. And, you know, we've had, what do we have? So some of the more interesting, more bizarre ones are like, somebody said, was somebody living in the house? Was somebody hiding in the house and doing all of this? And you go, well, that is interesting. But then you go, they'd have to have done this for 12 years. Could you survive unspotted in the house for 12 years? Um, People have been getting, pulling out old maps and researching the area. and, And we had a really kind of amazing theory about there'd been an acetic acid factory on the site in the 1800s. And somebody said, could the acetic acid have seeped into the soil and could vinegar turn you mad and make you hallucinate? Um, but I mean, I was told the other day that Battersea Library now has a whole corner set aside for our case because there's so many people calling them up and asking for old records and old maps so they can research the area. Um, I don't know, you know, there's there's so many theories coming in and, and people I think there's, there's theories that are kind of environmental and scientific and then there's theories that are paranormal there's a lot of people contacting me who've had their own experiences and want to kind of offer their suggestions from that point of view uh, a lot of people talking about kind of the idea of energy that kind of you know recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis the, the kind of theories of William Roll that idea that um, you know, that the person can produce this energy that, the, you know, that surely is the poltergeist that the energy comes out of her. Um, and, um, and then also there's this kind of quite delicious kind of locked room mystery quality to it, that you've got this bunch of people locked up in this claustrophobic house and, and you have people going, oh, I think, could it be the mum? Could it be the gran? You know, who, who's, is someone behind this? And, and that kind of can work from two points of view. You can either have the skeptic point of view that they are faking stuff, or you can have the, the the more paranormal point of view that the energy could come from this person. Maybe the energy that the poltergeist is feeding off, if you like, uh, is is not coming from Shirley. It's coming from a number another member of the family. So I would say that this the theories span a massive spectrum from you know very paranormal to deeply skeptical, uh, and um, and in the middle there is this grey area because you know all of these cases have these bits where you look at them and you go, I think I could explain that by human hand. And then other moments where you go, how on earth can that, you know, nobody could have done that. There's no way they could have got away with that. And, and that's what keeps you guessing. 
But this is the beauty of, of approaching cases like this from, from the perspective of being a folklorist, for example, um, rather than a paranormal investigator, is to, that people who are looking at the folklore behind these sorts of stories, it doesn't actually matter. We don't mind whether this is you know, a genuine paranormal event or whether it's something else. It's what's far more interesting is why it happens and, you know, what people are experiencing and how they react to it. So, so yes, explanations are great to, to seek and we want to find them. But, but when you approach cases from another perspective, actually it doesn't really matter quite so much. I mean, are there things that you think you, you are happy that you just can't find an explanation for? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of give too much away because, you know, I, I know that there'll be people who haven't listened yet and I, I don't want to sort of give spoilers. But, you know, there, there are some key instances, you know, that there's that the family appear to see Shirley levitating above the bed, uh, which is a, a sort of, I mean, all of these things, the, one of the problems is they involve so many people and so many multiple witnesses. Um, and, you know, there, there are moments with the journalists spending the night with Shirley, which are incredibly hard to understand unless you believe that that journalist was entirely prepared to sort of sacrifice all credibility and just completely lie to make up a story, which, you know, people out there will have their own views on, I'm sure. But, you know, certainly the account I've read feels very plausible. Um, and I mean, just a lot of it is to do with just the length of time, the idea that a family could maintain this for the length of time they did suffering the kind of you know, hardships and deprivations that they did. I mean, they, they really suffered. The father had to take time off work. They were financially suffering. Their health suffered massively. I mean, it arguably cost the life of one of the family, you know, who, who died during the the uh, case of, you know, kind of what seemed like, you know, the, the effects of stress and, and um, you know, that just the physical impact on her. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's very hard. I mean, you, you know, you keep with these cases, you keep asking, like, why would people do this? And why would they maintain it for that long? And how would so many other people be duped around them? That you know, there's so many moments in this case where police and fire investigators and journalists and all sorts of people seem to back up what the family are experiencing. And I guess I don't know. I mean, just that idea of a conspiracy of hundreds of people over twelve years at times seems way kind of crazier than the idea of believing that it is paranormal. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Um, I, I want to think a little bit about some of the investigation, though, that's gone into trying to find these explanations. Um, and you're, you're right, some of, some of the, the listeners to this podcast will know Kieran because Kieran's done uh, a lecture for us before, for example, okay. a couple of things, um, and will know his work especially. Um, and he put you through quite an interesting test, um, didn't he, as part of this? Talk, Explain what Kieran had you do in his VR test and, and whether it was truly as horrific as it comes across <laughs> in, in so, your yeah, so, episode. His mission was to show me the power of fear. His line throughout the series has been, never underestimate the power of fear. And he is convinced that fear alone can create a haunting, that the, you know, the, the impact of feeling frightened on your body can you know, can can have a, a very profound impact and even make you hallucinate. And and um, so he took me to his his VR lab uh, at his university. Again, this is the those glorious moments of the past where you could actually go places before we were locked down. And um, and yeah, he showed me this truly terrifying VR experience. And you can hear it in episode two. And there's also video. If you go on the BBC website, you can actually see the video of me having this experience and screaming. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty shaking. And, and afterwards, you know, he put me into this dark room and, and it definitely played tricks with my mind. I sort of, you know, I was experiencing things going in that room that, that were not there, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I think that is powerful and, and actually reminding ourselves at all times of the power of the mind and the body and, and the fact that we are set up uh, as as machines to kind of react to and try and outrun predators. You know, this goes back to, you know, cave people times of, of you know, all, all these things, you know, the, the idea of the hair standing up on your back is to, is to try and trap the heat to sort of insulate you because you're shivering because of the cold and uh, of the fear. And, um, you know, and even, you know, 
pooing your pants with fear has has a point to it. It makes you less desirable to a predator. You know, so there's all these kind of psychological and, and physiological reasons. And definitely, I think it's unquestionable that many, 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 many ghost experiences can be as- explained along those lines. Yeah, it's fight or flight, isn't it? And, mm. and, and it's it's a, an, an inbuilt reaction. You're right. So in the light of that, though, in the light of Kieran's test and how that affected you, can you now put yourself in the place of Chib investigating the case with this kind of stuff going on around you? Are you able to investigate 100% rationally based on how you reacted to Kieran's test, for example? The same would be true of Enfield. You know, were Morris Gross and Guy Playfair able to 100% investigate rationally with all this stuff allegedly going on around them? What do you think? Uh, no, and I, th- I think, you know, we have to say that it's almost impossible to be objective, I think. And you, you get close to the person at the heart of the case as well, and certainly you see that in Enfield, you know, the, the investigators and other journalists. You know, I mean, we, we speak to Graham Morris, who was um, the Daily Mirror photographer who spent a long time at the, the house, like 18 months or more, I think, at the house. And, uh, you know, he got very close to the family, was helping them with their homework. And that that clearly stops you from being as objective as you'd uh, like. You know, uh, I mean, I, I, I've become very close with Shirley over this period of time, you know, so you, you can't be totally objective. But then, you know, the the flip side of that is saying, you know, if you come in as a, as a sceptic voice and just look at it and dip your toe in, then you can't really be objective either because you're not kind of immersing yourself and not looking at everything. But, um, I mean, you know, I think we have to say Chibbert was not objective. He had an agenda. He wanted to believe. And he believed that this case could be the holy grail of poltergeist cases for him. And he he really wanted to confirm it. And later in the case, you know, he he does start to go down what some people might think is a bit of a rabbit hole. And certainly I know Kieran thinks that, you know, he he gets very hooked on the identity of Donald, the poltergeist, and who it is, and and, and starts to think he's contacting with a particular kind of spirit and, and um, you know, and ends up devoting years and years and years and years to trying to prove that Donald is this particular spirit. And, uh, you know, people, again, will make their own judgments on that, but it sort of feels like possibly that is a bit of a red herring and it sort of confuses the issue for him. So, no, I mean, I think when you're in the midst of it, you can't, you can't be objective. I mean, you know, all I can do is sort of surround myself with different voices and listen to different perspectives. And, and you know, and I think ultimately you know, at the end of this series, we're going to present certain theories to people. You know, you'll hear a theory from Kieran. You'll hear a theory from Evelyn, who's more of a believer than Kieran. And you'll hear what I think. And I think that after you've heard all of that, the most important theory is the one in your head, the one that you have come to yourself. And we live in this age of, you know, it's very hard to change people's opinions. You know, just look on social media and you can see that. And I don't think I'm going to sort of have this kind of road to Damascus conversion for turning believers into skeptics or skeptics into believers. And I don't really want to do that. I think, you know, at the end of this, you will have heard all the evidence. You'll have heard what we think about it and you will make your own decision. And I think it's important to take that, that word skeptic, uh, you know, in, in its true and complete sense as well. It doesn't mean that you don't believe. It means that you approach it with an open mind and, and that you're, you know, you are able to accept an explanation if it's you know incontrovertibly given to you so it'll be interesting to see what people do think is it not fascinating though that and and a testament to the times we live in that some people will instantly go well you're making all this up this is a dramatization you know this is the next ghost watch <laughs> i know I'm, I'm flattered in a way because i was such a fan of ghost watch but um yeah i mean i i it has been interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a minority of people. It's not that many, but it's enough that I've noticed it. People saying like, oh, I know what he's up to. He's, he's made all this up. And, you know, somebody accusing me of having seeded stuff on the Internet and having some sort of nefarious powers to alter the course of Google and, and invent a fake case. But um, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I hate to disappoint, but it, it really is all, all real. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we live in an era of fake news, clearly. So I can sort of understand in a way why people are suspicious. And I guess there is that thing of like, you know, there's a lot of ghost hunters out there, a lot of, you know, skeptics out there, too, who go like, how could I not know about this? You know, if this was such a big case, why do I why have I never heard of it? Um, 
so yeah and i i understand it but you know i think you know the, the delight is that it is real and, and you can go out there and if you do actually a bit of research on google you'll find lots of photographs and newspaper articles and you know some of those are things we've put out there now we put stuff on the bbc website that people can see but there's been this huge rash of renewed interest from the papers so most of the british papers have now done quite big articles on the case and and you know like there was a really lovely moment actually where the daily mirror ran a big story on it a few weeks back and they used a picture of their original article in that article and they were the first newspaper to run a story on the case in 56 so you saw you saw this very first article mystery noises that haunt shirley and then here it was them doing a story about shirley again and seeing 15 year old shirley next to 80 year old shirley so i felt like the case had come full circle at that point yeah that's really interesting because the, the mirror were, were also very heavily involved in the enfield case as well uh, yeah absolutely so. they were the first people on the scene you know graham morris the photographer who we speak mm. to in episode three was the first person through the door you know um and has very powerful testimony about what happened to him um yeah i mean, I mean it, it is interesting you know that that was an age where people did go and talk to their newspapers when they were worried about something when they were you know when they wanted to try and get some help they would go to the newspaper they read you know you had this relationship you bought the newspaper every day you had a relationship with it and um and and people did you know and and you see that in um in quite a few ghost cases actually of people calling up and saying can you help me and certainly in enfield you know the the, the neighbor makes that call you know she, she calls up the daily mirror news desk and says you know there's things flying around the house we need help and, and, and there's a great story about how the bloke says you know all right all right call us back when the pubs are shut thinking that she's drunk <laughs> and, and she calls back when the pubs are shut and says you know it, it's still happening and, and and finally he has to take her seriously and um and they send graham down and you know the rest is history oh yeah absolutely do you think we're at an end now of seeing cases like this in modern times? I mean, this was the 1950s. Uh, then we have Borley Rectory, which is a very old case. Enfield is the 1970s. Do we just, do we not have the capacity now for cases like this to, to happen in modern times? Or do you think that we still do? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that... Um, you know, it seems like there's a period where there are significant poltergeist cases every 10 years. There's, you know, there's there's some big cases in the 30s, you know, the Al Alma Fielding, the, the book that's just been written by Kate Summerscale, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, uh, you know, 1938, interestingly. And um, 56 is R1, then uh, 66 to 68 is The Black Monk of Pontefract, which is another really famous case. Uh, Enfield is 77. And Yes, and I, I think, you know, can you have a poltergeist case in, in these times? You know, and, and the cynics would say you can't have a poltergeist case in the era of the smartphone because these things are fake and they're being caught out. The fraud will be caught out. That's the, the sort of cynical argument. Um, I don't know. I think as a society, we, we feel more comfortable with our ghosts being historical. And I think it's been really interesting seeing the reaction to this because I think people enjoy it and see it as a kind of historical mystery, a kind of period drama. They love it. And even people who are very sceptical and don't believe in ghosts are, are enjoying all of that. They don't feel sort of compelled to tear it apart. I think if it was somebody now coming out and saying, I have a poltergeist in my house, then I think they would be torn apart. And I think that, you know, they would be subjected to ridicule. And I think they would be, you know, big questions would be asked about if they were either, you know, an attention seeker or, or mentally ill. And, and, um, and I think it would get a very different level of scrutiny you know, much in the same way, I guess, as, you know, we sort of talk about someone like Joan of Arc now as this, you know, historical figure who was talking to God. And and now, you know, the, the kind of people who claim to talk to God are, you know, maybe sort of sitting on benches and drinking cider, you know, we're, sort of, <laughs> we're, we're marginalising those people. We sort of, you know, the, the, the kind of people who claim to have, you know, a, a kind of connection to something greater, a sort of magic out there are, are generally laughed at and ridiculed now or put, pushed to the fringes of society. So I, I think that's the reason. And I think there probably are a lot more of these cases out there and people are scared of ridicule and, and scared of how they've been treated and don't come forward and talk about it. And that's certainly what's come out from my research, like doing Haunted and then the cases coming in here. I found a huge amount of people, like way, way, way more than you'd expect, claim to have had ghost experiences. 
And plenty of people who don't believe in ghosts believe they have seen a ghost and have had very strange experiences. And I feel like that's what I want to do. I want to create a platform where people can talk about this. But there have been a few cases. There's been the South Shields poltergeist, which is sort of early 2000s. Um, and uh, a woman, I think she's called Caroline Mitchell, who's gone on to be an author who had an interesting case in Essex, I think, and, and she wrote a book about it. So yeah, the, been... the South Shields one is, uh, I think there's yeah. a new book about that out fairly recently, isn't there? Yeah, there's been a few cases. And, and you know, um, you know, I mean, and, and you know, clearly I, I'm already kind of thinking about what other cases could I investigate. So you do find yourself looking out there and seeing, can these more recent cases survive proper investigative scrutiny? Um, yeah, but, you know, it, it is a really good question about, about um, you know, will we see a case like this again? Or, or is it something that really is a product of its time? Do you, th- do you think there are any other patterns between these cases? Because some people are very quick to, to say, well, you know, this, this case is, is, a, is a working class family in the 1950s, li- living in a fairly meagre way. Enfield is in a council house in the 1970s with a family who who are not well off. But then something like Borley Rectory is a completely different thing. It kind of gets overlooked by people with those sorts of theories. Are are there any links, do you think, between these sorts of big cases? I think there are some very tangible links. I mean, I I think there are some, you know, people can make some quite simplistic links about, you know, it being sort of, you know, there will be people who say like these are families who were quite poor and, and, and dysfunctional and wanted attention. And, and, you know, that there's an accusation often made about the Enfield case about, you know, they wanted a new council house. They were doing it to try and get out. And, you know, but, but the family stayed there forever. They did not move. You know, Mrs. Pritchard stayed there. Uh, sorry, uh, not Miss Pritchard. I'm getting my cases confused. That's Hodgson. Um, the, the black monk of Pontefract, Mrs. Hodgson. Yeah. Mrs. Hodgson stayed there until the end of her life. And it was the same with Mrs. Pritchard in the, in the black monk of Pontefract case in the sixties. You know, she stayed in that house the rest of her life, you know, um, and, and definitely in Battersea, it isn't a dysfunctional family. You know, like you can sort of see in Enfield there were potentially there were, you know, problems and, and unhappinesses that may have sort of manifested themselves either kind of, you know, whether you're a skeptic, you believe it was fake or, you know, whether you're believing that it was psychically sort of bad, you know, the energy coming from Janet. You know, you can see disturbances there and unhappinesses. But Battersea is a very happy family and, and you can't, there's no tangible, obvious kind of things that would, you know, um, sort of cause that. So I, I think, you know, you, you can see links in terms of the phenomena. I mean, for some reason, these cases seem to always follow this pattern of noises first, objects moving, communication, you know, it does seem to follow that. And again, you can say, well, is that because people have heard of these other cases and they're kind of reproducing them, you know, or, or is there something here that's h- harder to explain? I certainly feel like looking at these cases, you can go back to Roman times. They seem to follow this pattern across the whole world, people are describing these experiences in similar terms in much the same way as if you ask people to describe a rainstorm or snow or, you know, sunshine, people would describe it in similar terms. So something is happening here. And, and, and for me, it, it deserves scrutiny. And I think being able to compare these cases and look at the similarities down to kind of really weird things, you know, like the Black Monk of Pontefract case features keys and our case features a key and there's a glove in the in the Pontefract case that that is, is quite significant and there's a glove in ours that moves and you know so you get moments that um that really do kind of link up in quite strange ways and again you know you say well is that coincidence or is there something more to it and you know it, it's deeply pleasurable to, to to probe into these things and pick them uh, apart these these things are really important yeah. especially when you look at them from the point of view of folklore I mean it's something that um I, I talk about very heavily in my book on um, apparitions of, of spectral black dogs, for example, because that's a phenomenon that's been recorded since the 12th century. Um, so you've got a thousand years of cases. And I, I still get eyewitness reports now because um, my work in this area is, is, is unusual. Not many people have covered it. So I still get eyewitness reports sent to me now. Um, and often it's from people who have no idea that other people have had similar experiences to them. And yet you get the same words and phrases from cases in the 1950s 
to cases in the 1800s yes the the um the language changes slightly based on based on cultural differences and so on but the the tropes and and the themes are absolutely identical and it's this idea of of the kind of if if you approach it from the jungian psychology viewpoint isn't it of having these kind of folk memories this collective consciousness that people draw on um so these patterns do do come up all the time and it's really interesting to see that in these sorts of cases too yeah 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 i mean you know i i you know we have eight half hour episodes so you there's only so much you can do but uh, you know like we did an episode about um i i went up to 30 east drive the house where the black monk of pontefract case happened that has actually become a bit of a kind of paranormal tourist attraction now um but um you know i went there and explored that case more and i would have loved to have gone into more detail on that because that's another incredibly interesting case which has some really tangible links and you know a girl at the same age as our case at the heart of it um yeah i mean you know i i there's only so much you can explore within the yeah. the, the framework of a podcast series but I, I think hopefully you know we'll do a bonus episode where we go into some things in more detail and you know who knows i sort of feel like this case has a life now this story has a life now and we'll sort of keep discussing it way beyond we make our last episode i've got a sneaky suspicion that it's got a it's got a bit of a way to run yet with one thing or another and i wouldn't be surprised to see some other developments come out of this later um i'm, I'm conscious of the time and i don't want to hold you up too much longer because i know you've got a busy evening ahead of you but before you go i just want to put one question to you which i'd be interested to hear an answer to if at the end of episode eight you phoned Shirley and said, they go, we're all done. What do you think of it? And she turned around and said, now do you want to know how I did it? What would you think? Would that negate the case for you? Or would that just be something different to look into? I mean, isn't that the, and the most um, sort of amazing idea, really, that, that at, the, at the whole time, as much as we trust Shirley, and you know we believe her when she tells us about these things. You know, of course, there's a little bit of your brain going, but was she responsible for stuff? And that's the kind of thrill of it, the frisson of it. It is a detective story. From the beginning, I set this up as you know, being this is a paranormal cold case. It's a detective story. We're going to try and solve it. And clearly, one of the solutions is that Shirley was responsible. You know, so you can't rule that out. You've got to look at that. And and um, you know, and I think hopefully this series has pulled people in different directions. And there are moments where they find themselves questioning that kind of thing if that was the case i would be very surprised deeply surprised i don't know i mean it's it's so hard isn't it i mean you know you still find yourself looking at all these sort of things and going well how could you do this you know there's no way you could have done it and explained it and i i sort of feel like you know whether you're a skeptic or a believer that this case is equally fascinating because if it was purely paranormal then it offers you one of the best chances, perhaps the best chance I've ever seen of proving that ghosts exist. And if it was purely humans doing this, it's the most fascinating psychological drama and human beings doing things way beyond any story I've ever come across, any, any sort of, you know, extremities of deviousness and, and pathology and, 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 you know, psychopathy. And, you know, what, what the hell is going on there? Why were these people doing it to themselves and, and or doing it to each other? You know, so I think either way you come to it, it's fascinating. And maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle. I mean, maybe there are human elements to this and paranormal elements to this. And these are the things that we'll be picking through, particularly in our latter episodes as we reach our conclusion. But um, well, time will tell, you know, won't it? Yeah, we will see. We will yeah, see. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, to me, it wouldn't negate it at all. It just becomes a new investigation. It becomes how could you undertake something like that for such a long period of time why did people not work out what you were doing what does that say about us as human beings or as investigators later on or as rational thinkers that you could do all that and nobody noticed it would just become a different case for me i think i, I mean i i think this this podcast is uh, sorry this case this story is like being in the ring with a champion boxer like it never gives you a moment to let up you keep thinking like oh i've got it and maybe maybe I, I kind of know where i'm at now and then suddenly doof, there's another one coming like how do you explain that and um you know so, so i i with haunted i felt like with a lot of our cases that we did i felt like i'd reached the point where i felt like there was a 
an explanation for it. I felt like it prob you know, in most cases, I felt like there was probably a scientific explanation. That that doesn't mean that it wasn't paranormal, but you know, there was I had heard an explanation that felt potentially convincing scientifically. With this, it's just so hard. Like, you know, Kieran has so many good ideas on this and so many interesting moments where he says, Have you thought about this? But there's always that other thing coming around the corner. It's like this labyrinth. You're going down one corner, you think you see the light, suddenly you're plunged into darkness. There's always something new coming along that says, Explain me if you can. Oh yeah, so, I mean, Kieran, you know, Kieran that's, told. That's the pleasure of it. <laughs> yeah, Kieran, Kieran told me what a, what a, an absolutely fascinating case it's been for him mm-hmm. to look into. I know he's really enjoyed it, and that's been great. Okay, finally, then, Danny, what 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 happens next for you? We've got episode eight comes out next week as we're recording this. It will have come out by the time this episode goes live on the Folklore Podcast. So, what's next for you? There's going to be a lot of fallout from this for you to be working on for a while, <laughs> I'm sure. But then what? <laughs> Fallout sounds negative, though. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Uh, not at all. I think you're just going to get a load of people at the end go, okay, here's some more stuff we've thought I know, of, and know, you're going to be working well, through it for a while. Well, no, I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think hopefully we'll make another series like this. You know, we'll find another case and um, and do a sort of similar treatment. I mean, maybe not another poltergeist case, but, you know, a, a case that has an intriguing mystery at the heart of it. Um and, you know, I, I would really like people keep asking me if I'm going to make more Haunted. And the, the Haunted was a thing where it kind of came to a premature close because of boring contractual issues with the American <laughs> podcast podcast platform that I made it for. Um, but I'm hoping that some either Haunted or something similar, you know, will come back and, and be a forum for telling individual ghost stories. I'd like to do that. And then, you know, I mean, I also I mean, I write other stuff, I'm a, you know, my background's in comedy and I write drama and. You know, I've got another show called The Cold Swedish Winter on BBC Radio 4, um, all about how kind of semi-autobiographical show about me marrying into a Swedish family. So, you know, so um, I'll, I'll be do- going back to doing that kind of thing. But I think, you know, in the, in the very first instance, I need a rest because th- this has been utterly all-consuming. And, you know, I sometimes talk in the podcast about, you know, just spending every night in the shed and just being sort of totally obsessed by it. And that's not me <laughs> pretending or trying to talk it up for dramatic purposes. I really have been like that. I've barely seen my family. So I think I need to take a bit of time off and, and um, you know, talk to living people. <laughs> <laughs> take some time off now before your next interview tonight. I know you've got a few lined up. Uh, in the meantime, Danny, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk about the case. Thank you, Mark. Thanks to Danny for an interesting look behind the scenes of this no longer obscure poltergeist case. If you've not heard the series, do download it from BBC Sounds and have a listen, because there's going to be an extra bonus episode soon based on new leads thrown up by the broadcast. In the next episode of the podcast, I'll be exploring the world of the geisha with my guest Hachiko, who will be explaining some of the ritual, dance and art that these women use, as well as performing on the shamisen. Don't forget... The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to for as long as we can keep going. But it is a costly business, and we rely on your support to be able to keep making content. Do please consider signing up for our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, where you'll get extra exclusive content. Or visit our website and send us a donation via the link on the front page. Without your support, we would not still be here. Thanks for listening and see you next time.